You're tuned into Going Long with Bruce Murray. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Going Long, the podcast that every week brings together people that all share one thing in common, their love for the world of sports, whether they love the game that they played or whether they love the game that they watched. It is a collection of all those people. And I introduced my next conversation with a great deal of sadness and a great deal of discovery about how I felt about putting this conversation up. Because Kevin Green tragically passed away on December 21st. I had talked to him just two weeks prior to that. And after his passing, make no mistake, we sat around as a group and I sat by myself and wondered, what's the right thing to do? I didn't want it to feel exploitive. I didn't want to feel like we were taking advantage of a situation. And I know on NFL radio, we ran a special with him just days after his passing. And after a lot of thought, I came to the conclusion that not only should we run it, but I think it's something that should be heard. Because his life should be celebrated. It really should be. This is a great story of somebody who overcame so much. And there's no reason why that story shouldn't be heard by everybody, despite his tragic passing. This is a story that if it was written into a TV movie, you probably wouldn't believe it. You know, a kid that moved around so much as part of a military family, not only could he not be noticed as a football player, he had a hard time making friends. Settling in Alabama with his family, also with his dad being in the military and wanting to play football, but not being recruited because nobody had ever seen him play in more than one place for more than a year. So what does he do? He goes out and walks on at Auburn. He didn't walk on at my alma mater, Tulane. He didn't walk on at James Madison. He walked on at Auburn a team that was traditionally competing for national championships with Pat Dye and somehow got noticed, somehow played his way onto a team with guys that were recruited from all over the country and got noticed. Not only was he noticed, he was noticed to the point where some called him the best on the team by the time he was ready to exit. Got noticed to the point where the Rams were willing to invest a draft choice into him. Not a high draft choice, but a draft choice nonetheless. Then I think he wished he wasn't noticed. And you'll hear that story that he talks about with John Robinson and sacking the quarterback. But just the dedication he had and the pursuit he had to the game that he loved so much and how he lived his life and the appreciation he had for his family, his father, his brother, everybody that put on a uniform, the speech he made at the Hall of Fame. Again, it it didn't come easy. We didn't sit down and go, oh, we've got to play this. We came down and talked about it. And again, I would encourage you to listen because everybody should hear the story of Kevin Green, despite his tragic passing. Here now is that conversation. You know, Kevin, I have a lot that I really want to talk to you about, including, you know, going into the Hall of Fame in 2016, your career and everything. But I want to share with with our audience exactly how this podcast came about. It's the traditional way, right? I'm doing my radio show, and it's not often that we go to the phones, and on the other end is a Hall of Fame football player, and it was you. Yeah. (laughs) You're chatting with us about the Green Bay Packers, and I said, hey, how about coming on the podcast? And you were like, okay. I mean, (laughs) that's what you're listening to when you're driving around? Well, yeah, you know, I'm a – I'm a football junkie, bro. I, I love football. I've loved it my whole life. And 
and uh, played 15 years. And I'm, I'm 20 years into my retirement, which I can't believe, but I still love it. And I listened to your show and you were talking about uh, you were talking about the fella up there in Green Bay throwing all those touchdowns. He's one of the best quarterbacks in the world, Aaron Rodgers. And uh, I was a coach there for five years on with Mike McCarthy back in the day, you know, and uh, won a Super Bowl there in, in 2010. And so I wanted to comment a little bit about Aaron Rodgers and what I thought about his play and everything and, and Ted Thompson and Mike McCarthy and so forth. So. Yeah. You know, I'm always curious because guys who have played the game at your level, obviously, but even guys who have just put on a helmet and played it for whatever years it is. Um, look, you know, there there's broadcast outlets that employ former players, but oftentimes they fall into the same traps that we as broadcasters do. You know, the cliches that come with it. I'm always wondering what you're thinking when when guys are talking about the game that they haven't played in. And, and whether or not we have any real perspective of what goes on in that locker room. You know, I, I would say this, that um, some do and some don't. And, uh, <laughs> and more times than not, I think if, if a player or an ex-player, I would say, or an ex-coach is, is commenting about the game, you know, they're, they're pretty close to, you know, what, what happens, especially if it's an ex-player, they're pretty close, but, you know, sometimes uh, media personalities, you know, are, are, are stretching some things here and there and so forth uh, when they comment on the game and, and, and things that they truly believe in, but may not be <laughs> 100% accurate. So, you know, I just kind of laugh, you know, my wife kind of laughs, you know, when, when that happens, but, uh, uh, but it is fun. It is fun to listen, so. So I will say this, you coached in Green Bay for a number of years after you were done playing. But as you said, you're 20 years into your post career. That's unbelievable to me, by the way, because, you know, yeah. when you're close in age and you're, you're, I think, a year older than me, I'm 57. You're 58 now? Yes. Yes. And I'm thinking, God, I remember you in your prime. And it, yeah. it says that I'm getting older. I mean, we're all getting older, but 20 no years question. football. I know that's that's crazy. I played, I think pretty long as as a linebacker I played till I was about 37 and a half you know and uh and I think that's considered quite old but I, I thought I was still productive you know and uh, my last year my 15th year I I was runner up pro bowl vote you know and uh, I still had double digit sacks I think I had 12 sacks my my last year in the league so I thought I was still productive but I I knew this you know I wasn't quite hunting like I was earlier in my career that you would probably remember in my prime. I kind of found myself standing around the pile and not getting my nose in the pile. And I'd drill a pile though back in the day just to drill something and hoping the ball would come out, you know, but then I found myself standing around the pile and it, it happens. It happens to the best of us, you know, but it's been 20 years. It's crazy. So, so you coach for five. What, yeah. what have you done with life after football? Yeah, you know, I spent five as a uh, Green Bay Packer coach. I spent two years on the Jet staff with Todd Bowles as the head coach there. And, uh, you know, I had to step away. Uh, I had to have, get both of my hips replaced, in which that's kind of crazy. Both my hips went out so fast, Bruce. It was amazing. And I don't even remember hurting my hips when I played, but all of a sudden, within a span of two years, both of them just 
up and failed. So I had both of those replaced and feel a lot better. And uh, right now I'm really just pouring myself into my son, Gavin. He's, he's going to be a, a senior um, this next year in 2021. They canceled his senior year this, this season. He plays for Mississippi College. It's a D2 school in Clinton, Mississippi. And he's a lot like dad, you know, a tweener, pass rusher, run defender. And so now I've got a chance to really, you know, show him a lot of the tricks of the trade, you know, that was uh, responsible, you know, for elevating my level of play. And so it's, it's just neat, you know, best thing I've ever done being a dad, you know, yeah. Bruce, and it's the best thing ever. So. Does he appreciate what, what you accomplish? You know, I've got three boys of my own. Uh, they know what I do. And oftentimes it's like, you know, I'll say something about the NFL and they'll go, ah, dad, what, what the hell do you know? Um, you know, cause they're, they're your boys. And I'm wondering, does, right. does he appreciate what you did? You know, I, I think he understands. I think he, Gavin's a smart, smart kid. You know, he, he's on the Dean's list, you know, semester in and semester out at school. And, and he, I think he un- understands dad did some real special things as a player and, and so there, I, when I'm, when I'm coaching him on the field and showing him different stuff, he's, he's really a keen to what I'm teaching him, just the techniques and fundamentals, Bruce, just pad level, strike point, hand placement and footwork, all the little nuances of the position that's going to, going to help him be a better run defender and a better pass rusher. And so he's, he's keen to log all this stuff away. As a matter of fact, this morning while we were working out in the weight room, uh, he just rattled off about a, a, a two-minute uh, dissertation on proper technique and fundamental and run defense, you know, and it's something that I have been preaching to him for years, and, and he, he's, he's got the verbiage, you know. <laughs> he's got all the verbiage correct. This is exactly, Dad, the way you do it, bada, 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 bada. And, and now it's just him getting that and transitioning that information and put it into actual, you know, game day, you know, production. Yeah, it's great. You know, as a dad, you, you preach all these things. You wonder if it's getting through. And then you look up one day and you're like, wait a second. He was actually listening to me. That's uh, right. And he, can, and he can regurgitate it. So, exactly. you know, I mentioned, you know, at the beginning, and, and I really want to, you know, flash ahead or, or back, I should say, to, to the Hall of Fame. Because I think there's so much that I learned about you just from you getting inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame with a friend of mine, Brett Favre. You went in together back in 2016. And I didn't know anything about you. You know, you were the guy, the crazy man on the field, et cetera. And then I saw you, you know, you were arguably conservative, um, prepared. I saw you introduce your father, who I believe was a retired colonel, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. Uh, in Vietnam. Did your brother also, he was in the service as well? Yes, sir. So I'm thinking to myself that Kevin Green, I knew this guy with the long flowing locks coming out of the helmet, um, crazy man on the field, you know, figuring that, you know, his parents weren't going to be the conservative type. And here you are. I learned that you grew up in a military family. And I think right. if I'm not mistaken, first right. of all, dad let you grow long hair. <laughs> You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I was being rebellious, I guess, when I did it. And, uh, and, I, and also remember, I was probably in my early 30s when I finally did it, you know, so. <laughs> you're, st- you're still his son. <laughs> yeah, but no, uh, my dad was everything to my career. Uh, retired 32 years in the Army, Airborne Ranger, Vietnam vet, you know, like you, like you mentioned there, my brother. 
he meant everything to my career too, Keith. And uh, he uh, spent 22 years, uh, and he was uh, a paratrooper like myself. We went through airborne school together back in the summer of 1981 at Fort Benning, Georgia. But he ended up being a lieutenant colonel, uh, 22 years, uh, 101st Airborne Division. He was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in the first Gulf War and so forth. So uh, just really proud of him. And it just kind of ran in the family. And uh, and I think the, you know, people thought the crazy aspect of, of my play was because I was really passionate about the game, Bruce. I really, I enjoyed playing the game. I enjoyed uh, getting sacks and making big plays and tackle for losses. And, and then when I did, it was just, you know, I, I had to celebrate and just dance around, just, just to let some of that energy I had in my body, I had to let it out because I had, I had such a great time playing the game that when I made a big play, I was just, it was just overwhelming for me. And I just had to let that energy explode out of me, you know? And so I think people saw a lot of the, stuff I did and said I was crazy I guess I don't know <laughs> but so so you went to paratrooper school you know my brother and I went through ROTC together at Auburn uh, in the early 80s we were both commissioned the second lieutenant and uh, he was commissioned into the uh, regular army and I was uh, I was commissioned into the army reserve you know and I served a lot in the Army Reserve, you know, 16-something years. And I ended up being a captain in 03 uh, as an armor officer. And so I uh, went to, and like, stuff like armor officer, the basic course at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Uh, you know, and that was after, you know, Keith and I went to airborne school and so forth. And so I did different courses and and, and so forth. And um, I, re- I was never deployed, Bruce. I was never deployed. I'm, I'm no hero. But I really enjoyed my, my time in, in the reserve and doing the different schools and so forth that I did. But I know when, when you've done it, you're measured in how many? So how many jumps do you have? Is, is, is That's how it's measured, right? Like how many jumps? Well, you know, when you go through the school, you, you, you're qualified on five jumps. And if you don't get any more jumps after the airborne school, it really doesn't matter. You're still a, you know, a, a paratrooper, United States Army paratrooper. And they call me a five jump chump. So I'm, I'm pretty proud to be a five jump chump. When I meet other paratroopers, they, they've got like 35 jumps and 40 jumps. And I go, well, I'm a five jump chump. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm, I'm a paratrooper. I don't know if you could see this. This is, can you, that's my, oh, my, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. My airborne wings there that, you know, that I tattooed on my shoulder. So it was a, <laughs> really important time of my life that and, uh, and just meant a lot uh, again to to my career and, and as I pursued football so, so that was never something that that became something you fell in love with like you don't want to do it as a hobby out of once you left the service you know even in foot on the weekends you know skydiving or whatever it is no I you know I I don't think I ever wanted to skydive as as a civilian but at the time when I was, you know, in, in the Army Reserve, uh, I, I, I wanted to be a part of the legacy of the United States Army paratroopers. I wanted to be a member of, of that fame. They're, they're, you know, the, the, the paratroopers are just, you know, it's just a, a, an elite fraternity, let me say. 
And I, I wanted to be a part of that, you know, because not everybody is built to, you know, jump out of a per perfectly good airplane, you know, and you got two chances to survive, you know, your main canopy and your, your reserve canopy. And it's just, you know, it was just a mindset at the time and uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the, uh, the school there at Fort Benning, Georgia. So, so you're part of two elite fraternities, paratroopers, obviously, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which, you know, we'll talk about. But, you know, you're part of a military family. We didn't even talk about, you know, uh, you growing up in how many different, you know, how how often did you move? How how often exactly. did you get around? I mean, what was what was childhood like for you? No, we moved every two to three years as a military brat. Bruce does. You know, we all move every two or three years to different locations and so forth. I've lived. Uh, in Germany for six years, two to two tours of three years each, and you know, and went to high school in Granite City, Illinois, when my father was stationed in St. Louis, and um, you know, just first time I think I ever lived off a military base is when I was in school at Auburn, you know, playing, you know, there at, at Auburn University in Alabama, so. I lived on military bases pretty much my whole life. I was the proverbial military brat. So listen, I know that it's cliche to say this, but you know, so much of what I know of the military, you know, comes from what I've seen in the movies. You know, when you see a movie like The Great Santini and how hard it can be on the kids, you know, obviously you see movies about the guys that come back and the challenges they deal with. Uh, let me hear it from you. I mean, it, was Dad tough because he was a colonel? Yeah, you know, I think my dad was. I mean, obviously, he is very regimented, you know, and very disciplined, you know, and uh, very respectful for authority and, and so forth. So, and he passed a lot of that down uh, to my brother and I and my two sisters and so forth. And, and we, we, we understood what a work ethic was early in life, you know. So I, I think my dad was, you know, a, a good soldier, you know. But, yes, I think he was uh, – uh, full of discipline and regimentation and, and, and authority and so forth like that and respect and so forth. And, um, and that's all good. That's, that's all good. But I don't think he was overbearing at, at all whatsoever, but I think uh, just, just the right amount. Was he comfortable talking about his experiences? Cause many guys aren't even with family. I've talked to guys that their dads come back. I mean, your dad was in Vietnam. That's, I mean, you know, yes. not an easy thing to discuss. What was the dynamic like in the family with that? Was that's business and this is dad or, or did you, were you curious about it? You know what, when it wasn't something that I don't think that uh, uh, I ever intentionally broached with my father, you know, his, his time in combat, you know, over there with the 101st Airborne Division, uh, you know, he talked about it once or twice, you know, he had a job to do. Uh, he, he was in the infantry and he was part of, um, uh, uh, making sure that every, uh, Ford, uh, fire base had munitions and everything that they need. He was, uh, he was dealing with the ordinance of, of it and, uh, flying with, uh, on Hueys, you know, on these hel helicopters, fire base to fire base, coordinating different things. But uh, he, um, you know, I never really pressed him on his uh, on his service. And, you know, he didn't really volunteer a, lo a lot of it, but it, it didn't keep him, ob obviously, I don't think, from being 
uh, a really awesome dad. What a great dad he was. Because what I remember about my dad was he was involved in every aspect of my life. He just didn't, you know, have me and just ignore me. He, you know, if I was into baseball or basketball or football, he was either the assistant coach, one of the assistant coaches on the team or, or the head coach, you know, and if I decided I wanted to go into the Boy Scouts, my dad was an Eagle Scout. And so um, my brother and I both became Eagle Scouts because we got into scouting because my dad was into it. And, and he was either an assistant scout master or, 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 or the scout master. So he was actively involved in, in our life. He had our hands on my development in every stage and my brother's development. He, he made, you know, and he made a conscious effort to pass on that work ethic, regimentation, that discipline of that, of that military life, you know. And what about your brother? W would you be comfortable talking with him? And was there ever any jealousy over the bond that they may have had from being in the same profession? No, I don't. No, no, I no, no, no. I mean, my brother and I, you know, we, we talked about his service and, and he, he was actually awarded, I think, the, uh, the Bronze Star over uh in the first gulf war and i think that would have been 1990 91 some yeah 91. That, that that time frame exactly and he was over there flying helicopters saved a couple guys lives and and there's a whole story behind that but um really loved my older brother and uh just like i said meant, he meant a world to my career too because he's two years older and he set the standard about you know how you really need to be respectful and how you need to behave, you know, growing up and so forth. And, uh, and just, just the best older brother ever. So. Yeah. So, so, you know, I know you thanked all of them going into the hall of fame. I go back to that because I also remember when they unveil the bust, there can't be too many busts in Canton that have hair like that. And your bust had the <laughs> hair on. I mean, I'm thinking that's the bust that's going into the hall of fame with that hair. Yeah. Now it, it was really neat as I was working hand in hand with the sculptor of that bust you know and how i kind of wanted the hair to be and provided him with a bunch of pictures you know of me and in, in, in my playing time there at pittsburgh you know and, and so forth and and uh it was really neat as we were you know creating the bust and everything and i think my 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 sculptor he, he did a great job you know uh emulating the, the pictures and everything that i wanted him to put in in that bust and and I think Ed Ed Reed, right? That just went in a couple of years ago. Didn't he have, you know, his hair is, is is something else too. I mean, it's crazy if you look at them side by side. They're like, okay, I'm not sure which one I like better because this is definitely pretty cool too. All right, so you, you're that classic guy. First of all, how'd you end up in Auburn? Like, like you know, did the family live in the South? Like, why Auburn? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, see, my mom and dad are from Chocolaca, Alabama. And so my father went through ROTC at uh, Jacksonville State University there, right beside Anniston, Alabama. And he married mom and they, they went off in, in the military for the next, so, you know, 30 something years and had four kids. And so everywhere we traveled, we were Auburn fans because mom and dad were Auburn fans. And, you know, in Alabama, you're either born Alabama or you're born <laughs> Auburn, nothing on the fence, you know, and so. Everywhere we like living in Germany, we'd get up late at night and early in the morning and listen to Armed Forces Radio Network and listen to Auburn play uh, football games because they didn't have, you know, I guess TV back in those days over in those military bases, you know, and, and 
in the seventies and so forth. So, um, but yeah, we grew up Auburn, Auburn fans because our mom and dad were Auburn fans. Yeah. And, and I think we got out of school the same year. I graduated. I went to Tulane university, by the way, graduated yeah. in 85. And I want to get to the draft because Bruce Smith was the first pick that year. I remember yeah. seeing him at Virginia tech. Tulane was in the Metro conference. We played him every year. And then yes. Freddie Joe Nunn, also a great player, yes. was drafted in that same draft, and we played him. But, but before we even get to that, because I, I digress, the one thing I wanted to ask you about growing up is, you know, you talk about listening to Armed Forces Radio in Germany. Uh, you know, two things. A, was there any, as a kid, like, did you ever go, oh, I got I to gotta make new friends here, and I've got to make new friends there? And, I mean, you, you know, you're, how old are you living in Germany, learning to play football? That's that's not a nor. I don't want to say an abnormal upbringing. You know what I mean? It's not the traditional. That's my path to the NFL upbringing, if that makes sense. Right. No, I mean every military base that we lived on was um, a a small base of America. No matter where it was, it could be in the middle of Germany, but on that military base was every. It was like the United States of America. I mean, it was sole property of the United States of America. And so I went to American schools and everything, grew up in American schools. You know, I'd go down to the commissary or the post exchange, the PX, and every, everything was American. Even the, the, the athletic center, the youth athletic center, uh, was, it was, it was all about, you know, getting the kids together and getting them into basketball and baseball and football on this military base. So it was a self, a self sustained American base, you know, it was like living, living in anywhere in the, in the country here. So. And did you make friends as a kid that you kept for oh, life or, or was there a lot of, you know, it was so transient that they were short lived friendships. Yeah. Most of them were, most of them were two or three years. And then we moved. I don't think I was smart enough back in those days to <laughs> say, Hey, here's my base address where I'm going to be one day in which I had no idea where that would be. Contact me here. You know, or because we were all military brats, so we had no way to kind of give any kind of forwarding information to keep up with anybody. So it was a, a lot of friends that I uh, made that that uh, obviously I, 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 there was no way to keep in contact with. And, and tell me about that. Does mom just come in one day and go, hey, we're moving to Germany or we're moving to, <laughs> you know, wherever. I, I don't even know where, where all the different bases were. Some obviously in the States some overseas but do you just wake up one day and mom goes hey we're moving again pack up your stuff here's where we're going well we just knew two to three years somewhere was about the maximum amount of time you know once it get to be about three years at the you know we, we're like okay it, we're fixing to move in the next you know three to four or five months and dad would come home and guess well guess where we're going this time family you know and we were like so excited about moving to a different area you know, so um, no, it, it was it was something that we got excited. You know, around two and a half years into a, uh, a deployment or wherever my dad was going to go and live, and around three years we rotated out and rotated somewhere else. And it was always exciting meeting new friends and seeing new things, doing new things. You know, did, did you have a favorite place? You know, I really love Germany. I mean, I I really love living i lived in uh Mannheim, germany for a couple of years and another place called uh, worms and i lived in munich and another place called swabish Gamun. i really i really enjoyed 
the Germany and, and the history and the countryside, the Germans really respect their, their, their land. You know, I don't remember a lot of litter being on the side of the road in Germany. I think people are just born with a love of the land and respect for their culture and so forth. And I, we love the food over there, you know, and, and so when we can, we find a German restaurant, you know, and we've, Found a couple down where we live here in, in Florida and so forth that we go to and and eat Jaeger schnitzel, you know, and this original <laughs> German people making the, the food and so. But no, I, we really enjoyed Germany. All right, so so let's go back to college because you know before we run out of time, I got to talk about your your pro career, which ended up in the Hall of Fame. But you go to Auburn. Um, I, I know you talked about it at your Hall of Fame speech, but those are some pretty good teams. If people forget. If I'm not mistaken, you may have had not Bo Jackson is the guy that stands out, and I got to yeah. find out what it was like to play with him or against him. Yes. But I think you may have had three guys in that backfield, all of whom went to become NFL running backs, and some of them yeah. pretty good. Lionel James was, I think, there with of you. Of course. What a fine player. I mean, you know, practicing yeah. against those guys, you talk about prep for the NFL. That was the place to be right then. Yeah. I mean, practicing against like little train, Lionel. Lyle James and Bo Jackson. I mean, you're you're seeing the best of the best, and and I might add what Pat Dye, our head coach, you know, down at Auburn, what he put us through down on the plains, uh, Bruce was was so freaking physical and so brutal. Some of those practices we went through that playing on on game day on Saturday was um, was almost almost akin to a light day of practice down at Auburn. It, you know, it was like, it, I think his, his Pat Dye's attitude was we're going to make practices so ungodly physical, physical hard for you guys that you're going to show up to Saturday and say, okay, this is not as hard <laughs> as it is playing against each other, you know, Monday through Friday. So when I went to the NFL, I, I was drafted in the fifth round by the Rams in 85 and Bruce, I, I mean, I was I was moving quicker and faster and hitting harder than anybody in in training camp. It was evident to me, and I think it was evident to the coaches, and uh, because of what I learned at at Auburn down down on the plains there in Auburn, Alabama. All right, just just tell me about Bo. The first time you saw him, do you remember? You know what? I can't remember the actual first time I saw him, but I can tell you that. Um, I, I witnessed things there at Auburn that would just, I mean, just don't people say their stories, but I actually saw him, you know, I saw him pick up a football and throw it 80 yards in the air one time, you know, as we were just warming up on the field, just picked up a ball and he chucked it. And the reason why I say it was 80, 80 yards, cause I got up from my stretching and I ran all the way down to the other end of the field with another buddy of mine and actually, and we saw where the ball landed and we, and it was it was 80 yards. It was an 80 yards toss that he just picked up and just threw like he could throw a football anytime he wanted to. It was incredible. So just little stuff like that. And and the fact that my, my position coach would get on my butt sometimes because I wasn't tackling Bo Jackson. And I was telling him that I was giving it my best shot. And I was hitting Bo as hard as I possibly could hit him 
but it was able to get him down. And so I got my tail chewed a couple of times by my position coach because I couldn't tackle Bo Jackson. Okay, all right. Now who the heck can tackle Bo Jackson? <laughs> he, was, he was good. Yeah. You know, after after a couple of years in the NFL, you ever think about reaching out to your position coach and going, see, they can't tackle him in the NFL either. <laughs> It's time you apologize for not being able to tackle him back. Yeah, no question. That's a great idea. But it, it was just, you know, I just, we just knew Bo was special. He was special and, and we knew it. And so all we had to do on defense was do our job on defense because Bo was, you know, in that offensive line block, blocking for Bo back in the day. They were opening up some holes, obviously, for him to get through. And he was just a phenomenal athlete. And I, Bruce, I played against some of the best running backs in NFL history. I mean, let me think. Walter Walter Payton and, of course, everybody, you know, Emmitt Smith and and then uh, well, Mark, Marcus Allen and Barry Sanders played against and with um, Eric Dickerson, of course, and, and Marcus Allen. And, I mean, some of the best running backs ever. And uh, I'm just telling you, if Bo hadn't got hurt, you know, he, he would have gone on and busted any kind of rushing record. I, I thoroughly believe that. Not just because I played with him at Auburn, because, you know, I played against them all, the Herschel Walkers. I'm just telling you, Bo was, he, he was, he was special. He was special among special Hall of Fame running backs that are in Canton right now. Yeah. I mean, you talk about that group and, and, you know, I, I didn't even think about it, but you were teammates with Eric Dickerson. I, I always tell this story, you know, as, as a Tulane alum, Tulane played SMU. It was my sophomore year. And they had the Pony Express with Eric Dickerson and Craig James. Craig James, yes. And so we, we were in Dallas, and we kicked off. And the first play from scrimmage was holding. And they had a first and 10 from their own 10. And I'm sitting back in New Orleans watching the game. We're all excited. Hey, they're the number three team in the country. Maybe we'll beat them. The second play from scrimmage, Eric Dickerson went 90 yards. And I think the two of them had like 450. <laughs> and I think the final score was like 51 to three. So that excitement lasted for one play. But when, I mean, you know, you're not supposed to be able to do what you do yeah. in college at the next level. And for the first couple of years of Eric Dickerson's career, that second year, you thought every time he touched the football, he was going to score. Now you got there, I think in his third or fourth year, was it what had, he had been there a couple of years? Let's see. So his first year in the NFL was 83. Was that 83? 83, 84? right. Was 83. It okay. So he broke the rushing record in 84, right? Right. The, the year before two, you got there, right? That's right. And I was there. So that he was a three-year veteran my rookie year in 85. And, uh, yeah, he as tall as he was, you know, six foot two, three, as big as he was and running like he was. And he, and he ran upright. Like he didn't well, run with it. You know, he ran upright. It, it shouldn't have been effective. And it was unbelievable. He, he, again, I mean, he was, again, a special guy. He, he was special. Had a play. And then he went to Indianapolis Colts, you know, and had a chance to play against him and so forth. And he, he, he was special, no doubt. But, but I just – from what I played against him and like I said, the Walter Paytons and the Barry Sanders and, the, and Marcus Allen's of the world. I just, I just, I look back at Bo and think, Oh God, if he would have stayed healthy, because he had Olympics, Olympic speed, Olympic speed. Now 
And he had all the quickness in the world and the physicality in the world. He, he was, uh, he was just, he was gifted. Now he was gifted. You know, I think about the names that you talk about and, and the one thing that I think about with uh, many guys in that group, and you may correct me otherwise, but not only were they phenomenal players, most of them were class acts. I mean, Barry yes. Sanders, quiet, yes. Walter yeah. Payton, you know, as classy as it gets. I don't I don't see those guys trash talking on the football field. That's right. Maybe yeah. you did a little trash if you ever tackled them, but they weren't. No. But no. I mean, that, that was like a real class Cla- group of guys. That classy. Yeah. Classy. A lot. Of, yeah. Real classy guys. And, you know, not to break subject on the running backs, but the quarterbacks, too, that I faced were real classy. And these guys were, you know, the Joe Montanas and the and the Dan Marinos and the John Elways and the Warren Moons and the Brett Favre's and the Troy Aikmans, you know, and the Steve Youngs, you know, and all the Hall of Fame quarterbacks, you know, had a chance to play against, you know, and they were so classy and so good. The Jim Kellys, you know, and and Peyton Mannings and and I just don't remember hearing a lot of those quarterbacks turning around and bitching and complaining to the referee, you know, to throw a throw a flag, you know, because Kevin Green's hit me a little bit late or he hit me too hard or he tried to uh, land on me with all his weight or I mean these these guys would never even dream about complaining uh to a referee for that cheap 15 yards that Cam Newton does all seems like he does all the time and I know Cam's an Auburn guy but good lord Cam don't do it man just play the game baby you ain't got to complain and <laughs> the referees for a cheap 15 yard flag all the time. Come on, man. <laughs> well, you, you, you know that you listen, I don't want to get into how the game has changed and all that stuff, but you know, oh, I, know. I mean, we, we know all that, but, but so you come out of Auburn and you're a fifth round draft choice, I believe. Right. Yes. Okay. And there was some, you know, hall of famers that were drafted that year on defense. I mentioned, you know, Bruce Smith was in that, that draft class, but there was some, oh, yeah. but were you one of those guys that, always looked at the guys drafted ahead of you and that was your motivation, that chip on your shoulder. You know, some guys use that as their motivation. Other guys don't. What, what, you know, you go fifth. Did you think you were going to be drafted higher? Were you happy just to be drafted at all? What was it like? I was happy to be drafted at all because, uh, I mean, there's a whole nother podcast you and I could do uh, about uh, how I actually walked on at Auburn. I wasn't a scholarship player and so forth. And that's that's a whole nother conversation, but uh, coming from the mentality of a walk-on and now I've got an opportunity. I've actually been drafted in the NFL uh, from just a couple of years earlier, sitting in the stands uh, and, and deciding to walk on. Um, it was just, I couldn't even believe I, I, I was drafted. I didn't care when I was drafted. I actually had my foot in the door and I was on a practice field wearing LA Ram gear. I just, I was just pinching myself and I uh, couldn't, couldn't believe I was, I had that opportunity and, and uh, just crazy. And so I didn't care who was drafted in front of me or after me, but I, I had a chance. So Wait a second. I'm not. I'm not letting it just go by saying you know I'm a walk on at Auburn because I, I have to at least ask you two things. One is, were you not recruited because of your military upbringing, bouncing around and nobody getting a chance to see you on a regular basis? And you go, you go to Auburn. This is one of the top teams in the country at the time, and you think 
I'm going to walk out of the stands and be part of this football team? Well, yeah, I, I think <laughs> yeah. I went to high school up in Granite City, Illinois. And, and I just don't think in, in 1980, Auburn had their recruiting fingers up in the state of Illinois. I just, I, you know, I think maybe they were more local based. I, I'm not sure. Were you recruited by anybody? Were you recruited but, by Illinois? Were you recruited by... You know, I was sent a letter by Mizzou and sent a letter by Illinois. I think I was like second team all conference and everything, you know. Uh, I had the height, you know, I was six foot three, but I'm only 200 pounds in high school. So a lot of people didn't didn't see a lot in a you know, six, three, 200 pound guy, second team all conference kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, I knew that I was going to go down to Auburn no matter, no matter what. It was just natural my brother graduated in 78 he went to Auburn and I wanted to go down and and be with my brother Keith you know my brother Keith and I were really close and I wanted to go to school with him down at Auburn and like I said ROTC and all that and but yeah no I I just you know I missed football and 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 I decided to to walk on there at Auburn after a couple years not not being involved with their program and playing ROTC football for Army and stuff like that. And I figured, you know what, let me just get on there just to see if I can make the team and put on an Auburn helmet and just be an Auburn Tiger for a year. That, that was really my initial thoughts. But after I did that, one thing led to another, and I stayed another year, and I played that year, and then I ended up getting drafted in, in the fifth round. It was, it was quite a, a remarkable, phenomenal thing that, that happened to me so so you, you walk on at Auburn does Pat Dye look over and go who who's this kid I, I wasn't out looking at this kid who is this guy <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm sure Pat Dye wanted to know who, who I was and but I, I was just I didn't even want to see Pat Dye because I figured if I if if I just stayed away from Pat Dye you know <laughs> I wouldn't get cut, you know, or something. Because <laughs> if he gets around me, he might just cut my stupid ass. I don't know. <laughs> but but it all worked out. And uh, next thing I know, you know, I'm getting – well, my senior year there at Auburn, my fifth year – I stayed another year and played that year. So that's my fifth year, second year, senior year. And I ended up leading the SEC in sacks. And I didn't even really know what a sack was. It was kind of crazy. Oh. I led the lead, I led the SEC in sacks over Freddie Joe Nunn. You know, you had mentioned him earlier. Yeah, I had eleven sacks in nineteen eighty four, and and then next thing you know, I'm getting drafted uh, in the fifth round with the Rams. I was just happy to be there. It was just an opportunity that was a gift from heaven. The way I kind of looked at it, and I was going to give it my best shot. You know, and uh, and uh, long story short, <laughs> fifteen years later, and so forth. You know. All right, I have to ask before we talk about your career in the NFL for a few minutes, because uh, you're a big guy. Big guys generally have real manly dogs, and yet it sounds like a small dog that's yapping. So yes. do, you have a, do you have a small dog? Well, uh, you want to bring me uh, that girly over here real quick? <laughs> this is not the kind of dog that I would expect you with a Great Dane. I would expect you with a Mastiff. I would expect you with, with a Lab. Uh, and I'm going to get a picture of this because, you know, for those that are listening, we do these on Zoom. Oh, wait a second. Is that a Frenchie? This is Frenchie. Okay. This is our little girl. Gold, she is Goldie Girl. This is our Frenchie Bulldog. Uh, what's her name? Her name is Goldie. 
I'm sorry. That's right. So my wife just reminded me that we named her Goldie because of the Hall of Fame and the gold jacket. And we, we and that's when we got her. We got her that year in 2016. So so this is uh this is our Frenchy little girl and she is a killer. She's a great pet. She loves everybody in the pack and she's just a good girl and just letting us know when someone's outside on the property. Is she is she unhappy with the podcast? Is that why she's barking right now? <laughs> no, no, we got some people out here working on the property. You know, she just she she is a she is great. She is smart as a whip. She's a good girl. She's a member of the family. You know how dogs are. They uh they become members of the family. It's amazing. I totally get it. Um all right. <laughs> let, let's talk. You, you get to you get to the Rams now. It's 1985. And everybody's got that welcome to the NFL moment. Sometimes it's just that you don't know where to go to get, you know, the mess hall. You don't know where you're going to be sleeping that night. Others, it's that the first time they're on a field. What's your welcome to the NFL moment? You know, I think uh, within the first two or three days that I was there in training camp, and uh, I almost got cut. I almost got cut. The well, head what do you coach, mean almost? What does almost mean? Okay. Um, so the head coach was John Robinson. He was yep. a head coach. You remember him from USC yeah. and all that? Of course. So yeah. I come in there and I start tackling the quarterbacks. The guys in the red jersey. Okay. Don't do that. Well, at Auburn, we it was drilled into us to – to tackle anybody. I don't think <laughs> go. You know, where's the deal? So you can imagine my first two two practices, two or three practices of my rookie year, I was hitting the quarterback. And every time I hit the quarterback, John Robinson would of course would yell at me and my coordinator would yell at me. And and so it wasn't getting through to me that I could not hit the quarterback or the guys in the red jerseys, Bruce. So finally, in that third day, John Robinson puts his hands on me and he goes, look, if you touch another red jersey, I'm sending your country ass back to Alabama. I will cut you. Do you understand? And I think at that point, I thoroughly understood I couldn't tackle the quarterbacks in practice anymore. I know that sounds crazy, but that really did happen. It took me a while to understand all those butt chewings, but I guess I made the team. But w w w do you think he really would have cut you? Or was just, and by the way, I want to I share something with you, uh, Kevin, because you shared with me. Uh, we're doing this podcast. My wife has just walked in the room. Yes. And you can say hello to Stella. What the heck is that? <laughs> Look at yeah, come look at Stella. So, so Kevin has a French bulldog, which he shared with me. Um, and, uh, and then we have Stella. Oh and my my God, God. Wait a second, this isn't video, but that's our Hi, little Frenchie. Uh, so they've just girl. met now. <laughs> oh. uh, Stella is four, and she's wondering why she's on television. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna let her go now. That's that awesome. Not that's awesome. French bulldogs, Kevin. Yes. Uh, 
so, so, so I, I'm telling my wife, I said, I, I expected you to have a manly dog. And, and here I am with a French bulldog <laughs> as well. So listen, you know, we're cut from the same cloth. What can I tell you? Um, so my wife said, uh, bulldogs play a lot bigger than, than what There's, they are. There is no <laughs> doubt about that. There is no doubt about that. Um, so, so what, you don't think he would have cut you though. He was just trying to get you a message. Well, I think if I wouldn't have got the message, I, I don't know how he, I mean, he, he, he could not continue to let me hit the quarterbacks. Could he? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the way he came across that, that I was, I was going to get cut. I mean, cause I wasn't getting it. I clearly wasn't getting it. It was in the heat of the moment. I'm coming off the play and I don't recognize this red Jersey. It's a quarterback and I'm, I'm, I'm programmed and, and, uh, I wanted to rip him a new one. And, uh, but I did get the message after he said that. And uh, when I look back on it, I think it was really good because he actually got to know who the heck I was. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, I was a fifth round draft choice and they're on the bubble, you know, Bruce, whether they're going to make that, make it or not. And uh, so I think it was good that, you know, he put his hands on me and jerked me up and looked me in my eyes and, and now, now he knows who I am, and he's going to be watching for me now. And 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 then I had a couple of good preseason games, you know, that I had like three sacks in one game and a couple of sacks in another game, and that solidified them, you know, keeping me that I found a way to get to the quarterback. Did you think you were going to make the team? No, I didn't. Not at all. I, I we got down to I think the second to last cut. What is that? The sixty or seventy? Or I can't remember, but there was still 15 players or something to be cut. And I'm like, I've got to be the next one on the bus home. I don't see how they're going to cut. Cause all the, everybody else now looks like they're either first, second round draft choice that my year or um, they're veterans. You know, these guys are veterans like four and five and six years in the league. You know, I'm like, there ain't no way they're going to cut those guys to, to bring me in. But they did. They let him a guy that was a five-year veteran, they, they, they let him go and they, they kept, they kept the rookie, you know, which is, I just didn't see it happening. He was, they, they were that good. I thought, you know? Yeah. So, so you're probably playing special teams as a rookie. Um, yes. You're doing all that stuff. I mean, yes. Yes. Um, what, 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 when did you get off special teams? Did you play it more than one season or did you play it? How long did you play it? Well, my, my, my first three years I played, all special teams. I was a four core special teamer, kickoff, kickoff, return, punt team, punt return. But this was uh, really interesting. Um, this was probably about four games left in the 87 season, the 1987 season. I was my third year in the league. J John Robinson called me in his office, the head coach. And, and I was, I was told to bring my playbook. So I figured I was getting cut. This is like in November or something in 87. And I know I'm, it's a story, but nevertheless. So I bring, I bring my playbook in his office and I am, I'm, I'm peeing in my pants. I know I'm getting cut. I know I'm getting cut. And he goes, green, we got to find a way to get you on the field. And I want to, I want you to open up your playbook and I want you to jot down some notes because we're, we're going to put a defense in for you next year. And he's talking about 1988. And there's still four games left in the 87 season. 
He goes, we're going to call this defense the Eagle defense. So we're going to, we're going to line you up over here on the outside of this defense and we'll give you some coverage responsibility. But what we really want you to do is we want you to go get the guy with the football. He goes, and if you do that, I promise you, you'll have fame, you'll have fortune, you'll, you'll have everything you ever, ever wanted in life. This is where you're going to line up, and this is what you're going to do. Write it down, Green. Write it down. It's called the Eagle defense. The defense coordinator at the time was Fritz Shermer. Mm-hmm. And so they put that defense in, and true to his statement, when I came back for training camp, in 1988, they put that defense in for me, the Eagle defense. And make a long story short, I was second in the NFL in sacks with 16 and a half right behind Reggie White. He, he read, led the league in sacks. And, you know, I pretty much busted on the scene. And we came back the following year in 89 with the Eagle defense. I had another 16 and a half sacks. So the, it was neat to me that the coaches – in 1987, there were still three or four games left in the, in the season to play, but they were already scheming and thinking about, okay, next year we got to get this kid off the bench. He's more than just a four-core special teamer. I think he could they, they gotta do something on the edge, you know, being ex, as explosive as I was and physical as I was, and, and they were right, and I just needed a chance to get on the field and do it. You know, it's amazing to hear because it's almost like they recognize that skill set in you and want yes. to make sure they took advantage of it. And without that, maybe there is no yeah. gold jacket. I mean, you, you think about Correct. what they saw then and said, yes. you know, we're going to give you this opportunity. And as you said, you took advantage with 16 and a half sacks. If they don't, if they don't have that, that instinct, That's who right. knows how it ends up? You know, it's amazing how some coaches see players and have a vision for players that other coaches don't, you know, and they had that vision with me. And, you know, you mentioned Brett Favre earlier. I mean, think about what's that numbnuts name at Atlanta that didn't even like Brett Favre. He oh, was Jerry, drafted by what's Jerry, his name? Gl- Jerry Glanville. What a numbnut. So Glanville has a future Hall of Famer and treated him like a bag of garbage. And then some guy up in Green Bay, well, Mr. Wolf, Ron Wolf, is that right? Ron Wolf, didn't, they, yeah. didn't he make a big trade to get Brett Favre up in Green Bay? Because they had a vision about this kid, Brett Favre, and how good he could be. And Glanville, man, he, you know, he didn't even see it in Brett Favre. Think about that. Yeah. He, uh, look, Ron Wolf traded a first-round draft choice for a guy who was picked in the second round. But Glanville was very comfortable with Chris Miller. So, you know, you, you can understand the kid. <laughs> Chris Miller, I mean, <laughs> okay, granted, he's got some skill. No, heck no. Unbelievable what a freaking nimrod Glanville was because his mind was closed to Brett Farr for one reason or another, didn't see his skill set or what he can bring to the table, Bruce, and just put him in the garbage heap. Put him in the garbage spot. Didn't even give him a chance. And I'm just, and he goes to Green Bay, and the rest is history. He's one of the best ever. Yeah. And so, yeah, so some coaches, you know, they have a vision, you know, and some some coaches don't see that that in specific players. And and 
a lot of times it ruins those kids' careers. Yeah. And listen, you know, the great coaches are great because they do have that instinct and that vision. And, you know, just like players, there are great coaches. There are great players. You know, yes. everybody gets it. That's um, right. You know, I, I will say before, before I follow up, you did provide me with one of my worst, worst memories from, I don't want to call it childhood because by then I was a young adult. But I grew up a huge Giants fan, grew up uh, on Long Island, grew up a Giants fan, Uh, remembered how bad they were when I was young, drafted Phil Simms. And then I I think it was the 89 season when our season ended with Willie Anderson running nonstop into the locker room, beating the Giants in overtime. Uh, I'm sure you remember that game exceptionally well. Very much so. I'm glad you brought that's a great memory for me. I'm so sorry for you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's like one play, you know. Uh, those games, when you can sense it coming and you get used to the dread, oh, they're marching, they're going to kick a field goal. And back then the rules were different. But this was just like, so I'm watching. And then wait, wait a second, the game's over. What the heck happened? And that's the way, and you're all following him into the locker room. Oh, I know. It, it was awesome. I, you know, I could, I could say this too, that uh, during that time in 88 and 89, when Phil Sims was, the, was, the, was the yeah, quarterback there, that was that was really starting my run. I mean, I, I was started to start to really get some folks now and and um, and hit them. And Phil Sims was one of those guys. I knew I was going to have a good day against Phil Phil Sims. They had a hard time blocking me on the edge. I think one guy named uh, uh, Jumbo Elliott was there, and he. I think I got two sacks on Jumbo and then another guy named uh, Riesenberg, offensive tackle. Doug, Doug Riesenberg. Doug yeah. Riesenberg, and he had a hard time blocking me. They really had a hard time blocking me. And, and, and that was a pretty good offensive line, by the way. Jumbo Elliott was a first-round draft choice. I mean, yeah. that, not a bad, you know, that team won some Super Bowls with Bart Oates and those guys. Yeah. And you, had, yeah. you, you owned them. I had a couple really good games, Monday night games, tough sacks, caused fumbles that really helped us out. Uh, and Phil Sims, uh, he, his drop back in shotgun, he, he took the ball at five yards and he went back another five yards. So really he's sitting back there at 10 yards, Bruce, from the line of scrimmage. And I don't care how gifted an offensive tackle is. Okay. There's no way he's going to be able to get out of his stance and get in his kick set and backpedal and crossover shuffle. He is not going to catch me on a 10-yard ballistic vertical sprint that I had from the line of scrimmage. There wasn't no way on God's green earth those guys were going to block me. Phil Sims kind of set him up for failure because his, his deep drop is what I'm saying. It really it really hurt him. But but he was pretty tough, wasn't he? I mean, he could he take it and get back up and go into the huddle. Oh, I, I, have, hit, I have hit that man. <laughs> and I have hit that man and just drilled him into the turf. And he has got up and, I, you know, he's like, Green, is that all you got? And I'm like, dang. <laughs> I always felt Phil Sims, you know, he's like a linebacker in quarterback's clothing. He, I mean, he was just one of the good ones, a tough one. Uh, you know, I, I would vote for him in the Hall of Fame any day of the week. I actually would, too. I think if, if he had yeah. that second Super Bowl when he got hurt and Jeff Hostetler won it, we may have a different conversation because playing yeah. Meadowlands and those bad yes. conditions, I mean, it wasn't yes. easy. Um, yeah. You know, we only have a couple minutes left. You know, a couple okay. of things. You don't win a Super Bowl, but you got close. 
Uh, yes. You're with the Steelers team. And, and I'd love to know the experience with Bill Cowher and the Steelers because, you know, when, when you think football, whether it's the Packers, the, the Steelers are, that's the organization. Everybody has that feeling in them. You became a Steeler. You went to a Super Bowl. You know, what was it like being a Steeler? And, and is that the one hole that you never filled, that, win, that, that hoisting a championship trophy? Well, I, I'm, I'll say this. My time at Pittsburgh was only three years. But I want people to remember me not as a Ram or a Carolina Panther or as a 49er, but as a Steeler. I want to be known as one of the, the, the legacy of the great defenders there, the Jack Lamberts, you know, and the Jack Hams and so forth, Mean Joe Greens, the great defenders there, and the Mel Blunts, you know, and just the phenomenal defenses that they had. And, uh, and I was blessed to be put in their Hall of Honor a few years ago, and I'm so grateful for the Rooney family for putting me in there to, to be a part of that because being a Steeler is, is uh, unlike any other uh, – other, that had been the other 12 years of my career with other teams. Uh, it, none of it matched to the feeling I had playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers and, and in front of the Steeler Nation and just you know putting our cleats on the necks of opponents and twisting and just beating people on a physical level with no remorse it's exactly where a linebacker wants to be right <laughs> on a on a team like that and just it was it was a time of my life being a Steeler for those three years but we did lose Super Bowl 30 I wanted to comment on that and unfortunately 15 years later Bruce almost to the day I'm coaching with the Green Bay Packers, and we're we are playing in Super Bowl 45 against my Steelers, Pittsburgh Steelers, Super Bowl 45 in Dallas, and I'm the outside linebacker coach in Green Bay, and I have my hands on the throttle of one Clay Matthews. He's my kid, yeah, and so. To make a long story short, I, we hosted we hosted the Lombardi Trophy after you know the victory there. It, I did get a Super Bowl, not as a player, but as a as a coach. So I've got a Super Bowl ring and a uh, Hall of Fame ring, and they are both really really cool. I totally dig them. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I can imagine, and you know, you, you go to the Hall of Fame, and and the one thing I wanted to finish up with, you had to wait. You know, some people get resentful of that. Harry Carson, another great linebacker, waited oh, a long yeah. time to great. go into the Hall yes. of Fame and was angry about it. Um, yes. I never got the sense that you were like that. You know, I, I, I built a – I don't want to say a relationship, but I've gotten to know Tony Baselli, a guy that I think belongs in the Hall of Fame, but short career because of the injury. Sure. I don't know if you yeah. can play the position much better. Um, some guys get frustrated. It gets hard to go through that process every year. And it then was. you sit down when you don't get in and – you know, when you retired, you were at the top of, of a category which we have such great appreciation for now, Sachs. What was it like waiting? It, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I mean, it is very difficult for me, Bruce. I mean, it's not something that, you know, I go public with a lot, you know, because I just, I just don't see the need for it. Um, but I did, I did struggle with it because I – I didn't understand uh, the criteria that was being voted on uh, to go into the Hall of Fame because they were putting in 
players that essentially played my position, same position that I played now, same position I played. And, and I knew that they were not, they could not do the things that I could do. They didn't do the things that, that I did, you know, and I, I question what is the criteria if it's not based on longevity and production? Because I thought it was you play a long time and you have a lot of great production with those years. That's really the criteria, but that is not always not always the case. And I, I struggled with that when I saw some of my peers that played my same position that I knew that I played longer. And I played the position better. So and you I never struggled. got hurt. You rarely got hurt. You know, availability yeah, was not an issue. I don't I really struggled with it. You know, I it made me wait a long time. And then I heard some bull crap like, you know, I was one dimensional, that all I did was rush the passer. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, uh, they obviously have never seen me play because I was a run thumper now. I took pride in being physical. An outside linebacker in a 3-4, you know, Bruce, you got three jobs. You got to rush the passer like a big three, you know, a big defensive end. You got to play hard at the point of attack versus a run. You got to drop in coverage like a big, strong safety. There's three jobs that you got to do equally as good, all three of them. You just can't be really, really good at one of them and totally suck at the other. <laughs> It doesn't work that way. You can't you, you can't be a three four outside backer if that's the case. I played the same position as your boy LT, Lawrence Taylor, you know. So um what I'm trying to say is that people that were voting for this Hall of Fame thing, they didn't really see me play. They just look at uh he's one dimensional. He's got 160 sacks in 15 years. He he did, couldn't do anything else really good. <laughs> those guys are idiots they didn't even look at my career and see what i was doing at the point of attack versus the run they couldn't they, they didn't want to see it they did they hadn't they were oblivious and so i struggled with all that i, I really struggled with the voters so but that's i guess neither here nor there now that it's water under the bridge because i am in the hall of fame well it is but but you know i've talked to enough guys about it i've worked with guys that are in you know what was it? Was it 10 years? How long did you wait? Uh, I think it was uh, 12. 12. So, yeah. so did there come a point in time when you were just tough to be around in January or February well, or, or you just didn't want to know? And, and by the way, who, who, who ultimately called? Was it David Baker? I don't even know who was doing it at the time. Who ultimately? Oh, yeah. I mean, David Baker knocked on my door. He did. Okay. Know, and that was in San Francisco back in 16. But you know, um, it, no, I mean, I, I, I struggled with it and I, I spent a lot of time and anger about it. And so I really, honestly, Bruce, we, Tara and I, my wife, we had to really pray hard about it, you know, because I had to get a piece about it because it, it, it was, it was bothering me. And, um, we, I just really, really prayed about it and just, gave it all to God and, and it's going to happen in his good time, you know, and just trusting that. And it did, it, it, it happened really at the right time. I don't understand why it, it took 
as long as it did. Uh, but it really, my, my son was a senior in high school. My daughter was a sophomore in high school. And so they were of age where they, they kind of understood what that meant to daddy to be going in the Hall of Fame. So they, they'll remember that, you know, the rest of their lives, the experience that we had in San Francisco. So if it would have happened five years earlier, they might have been so young at the time, they might not have remembered much of it. But now they thoroughly remember the experience. So all in the good Lord's time, I think. All right. So, so what number is inside the gold jacket? Because uh, I know that everybody gets a number. What's your number? Yeah. Well, my number is 299. And, of course, Brett Favre is 298, right? Because <laughs> they go in alphabetical order. Yeah. And then and then 300 is uh Marvin Harrison. So how about that? I'm between some phenomenal dudes, man. Phenomenal players, but better guys, man. Uh, all right, I'm going to let you go in a second, but you get both hips replaced. I think it's interesting because I did a podcast with the great New York Ranger Dave Maloney who just had his knee replaced, and I was talking about the toll that playing professional sports takes and here you are with your hips replaced. Um what does Kevin Green want to do when, when he's fully healed and can go back to doing whatever it is? I mean, you know, before we got, before we started, you showed me your backyard. Uh, you're living down in Florida. It's sunny. There's boats going by. There's palm trees. If it's me, I'm not doing anything. Right. I don't know that Kevin Green's not doing anything. So, so what's Kevin Green doing when the hips feel good? Well, you know, we are we are closing in on on 60 aren't we bruce isn't that horrible isn't that crazy no, no you're 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 closing in on 60 i'm only 57 <laughs> i mean isn't that nuts i mean it's I'm, time flies when you're having fun but yeah i mean the question is you know i mean i still have some piss and vinegar about football and i still have secrets of the trade i want to share with some kids you know and if I get an opportunity to coach in the NFL again, I think I, I might do that. You know, I would love to have an opportunity to co coach my son at the next level, you know, for a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's so hard to get in on a coaching staff in the NFL because it really doesn't matter who you are. No. You know, no, it doesn't. It, you got to know so it's of, all connections. It, it, and and on a sad note, it's amazing how many coaches are in the NFL that have no reason being a coach at all whatsoever. I saw in my stint at Green Bay, there was coaches on that staff that didn't know. Oh, my God. And coaches with the Jet staff that I was on them, how in the heck did these coaches get these jobs? It's like it's unbelievable. But anyway, I'm just complaining and bitching, but – uh, if I get an opportunity to get back in the NFL on the staff, you know, if Dom Capers gets somewhere, I mean, Dom's my man, you know, and he presented me to the Hall of Fame and everything. And uh, I, I'd like to, I'd like to coach for maybe a couple more years, you know, before I quietly go into that good night at the end of the dock, you know, with a cocktail <laughs> in hand. So, <laughs> so maybe, maybe in the NFL a little bit, you know, uh, coach a little bit and other than that i'm just gonna see where the wind blows right now yeah I, I would think if you if you wanted to coach your son at the next level somebody's hiring kevin green to be on a college staff i mean come on yeah no you know it's like it's like you said it's, it's it is connections it, it, it is it is connections and uh i dropped a pretty big hint you know at the college that he's uh going to right now about being on their staff and continue to work with gavin and I think it fell on 
deaf ears. You know, that's all I can say is that I don't, I don't know. Coaches are strange. They get intimidated, I think, maybe, yeah. you know, because I, I know what the heck I'm doing and I can, I can, I can help, you know. And, and I think they get a little scared because we talked about these co- – a lot of coaches don't really know what they're flipping, flying, flapping they're doing. They don't. It's crazy. It's who you know. And uh, anyway, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. So, well, well, wherever it is, I'm, I'm sure it'll be a success. And and uh, I've really enjoyed, you know, getting to know you over this last hour. You know, better than I've known you before. Great to know that you have a French bulldog. We have that in common. Right on. We have that bond. You know that, Kevin. Uh, and listen, I, I hope if you're driving around and you know something is said that you want to chime in on that, you'll call the radio show because it was it made you know made me smile. I kept wait, Kevin Green's on the line. You know, and we're not taking any more phone calls. And I go, of course we'll take Kevin Green. What are you talking well, about? Yeah, I appreciate that. I, you know, I had something to say I wanted to say about Aaron Rodgers. I'm a big fan of his. And I, I you know, reiterate, I, I think it's a shame that Ted Thompson and Mike McCarthy didn't, didn't do right by him and surround him with everything that he needed, you know, because he's let some years go by now. And, and I blame that on on Ted Thompson and uh, Mike McCarthy. Is no no question. It's, it's clear to me that they fumbled the ball there. So, but Aaron Rodgers, he's special. He is showing up special. Hard to argue that. Anytime you want to talk about it, you know where to find us. Uh, listen, yep. Kevin. Thanks really so much. Really fun yep. talking to you. Yeah, enjoyed it. Thanks, Bruce. God bless, man. I would normally conclude my podcast by saying, I hope you enjoyed the conversation we just had with whoever it may be. And it's a lot harder to do that today, but part of, part of me hopes you did. Because again, I do think despite the tragic passing, he is a life that should be celebrated. He will be remembered, whether it's in the Hall of Fame or the stories that he's told others, the stories that you just heard here, or just from the highlights that we see of him. Just because he's gone, as we like to say, there's no way Kevin Green will ever be forgotten. So I really do hope you enjoyed that podcast. Of course, you can get your podcasts on the SiriusXM app or wherever else you get your podcasts. We normally launch them every Thursday, but we'll be on a little hiatus until after the Super Bowl, when once again, you'll start hearing them every Thursday. And I hope you'll join me then. I'm Bruce Murray. Serious XM Podcasts.